Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. This is episode 136. 136! My God, we've been doing a lot of these. This episode is a continuance of part one, episode 135 of the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast, all about survival food. We focused the last one on the growing seasons. Now let's focus on the frozen seasons. Stay tuned. To know the landscape is to open up a door. Deeper connected than you've ever felt before. We know that you will love this podcast. So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. This episode's Know Your Tree segment is all about the American basswood, also known as Tilia americana. This tree goes by several names, and though some will argue that there are two native species to North America from recent genetics, they are both one and the same, with Tilia caroliniana being a subspecies. Don't hunt me for this. Don't put me on blast. This is what all I've been able to find on recent research studies. I've been going all over the place for like weeks to make sure that this is as accurate as possible. Anyways, the American linden, also known as the basswood, is a broadleaf deciduous tree that has one of the largest canopies in its native range, casting massive amounts of shade throughout the summertime. The native range of the basswood is most of eastern North America, minus the American southeast and some parts of the Maritimes, though you may find it there, it is not its native region. It is a prevalent tree throughout the Great Lakes region, known for being a keystone tree for the aptly named Sugar Maple Basswood Forest. Though this ecosystem is most well known in the uh, southwestern Great Lakes region, stands of sugar maple are often accompanied by basswood throughout their shared range. Living upwards of 200 years of age and an average height of 60 to 120 feet, the basswood tree is a fast-growing tree that is considerably faster than a lot of its neighbors like beech, birch, and sugar maple. This lends its shade casting ability to a lot of native understory plants like pawpaw tree, Canada wild ginger, and wild leeks. Its branches, young saplings, and shoots are good to rabbit or food to rabbits, squirrel, porcupine, but most famously beaver. Many species of insects feast on the foliage and flowers, including native pollinators, as well as some invasive species such as the adult Japanese beetle. This hardwood tree is honestly not that hard. It's a pretty soft hardwood being a very, very soft lumber, making it popular among wood carvers and instrument makers. The wood is often looked at as the most valuable portion of the tree, though many a bushcrafter knows the true gold of basswood, its bark. Called linden, lime, or basswood, this genus spans most of the northern hemisphere, and its names are often related to its bark's use in the production of rope or line. The bark is most easiest to peel in the early summer, but unlike most species of hardwoods, the bark can be peeled year-round with some careful use of a direct heat. If you need fiber in the dead of winter to lash a shelter together or to make snares, simply expose some sections of wrist-thick wood to fire and get ready to start peeling within a few minutes. Often what we do in the growing season is knock down a couple of mature trees. These we then peel with wooden spuds and axes. The trunk bark we reserve for wigwam shingles or other kinds of roofing shingles. The trunk wood we keep about four feet long in length and stack to dry. And then we attack the branches, peeling upwards of 300 pounds of branch bark per tree that we then begin to ret. Now, you've probably heard me talk about retting here and there on the podcast before, so let's give this pretty straightforward answer. Redding is the process of allowing bacteria in the water to break the fibers down and through a controlled rot or fermentation. The consuming of the starches and other plant glues causes the lignin-rich fibers in the bark to separate. This is the same historic process done to extract linen fiber from the flax plant. After a few weeks, you'll have a stinky bundle of fiber that you can rinse and hang to dry and then twist into rope fairly quickly or leave it longer. Leave it until there's absolutely no scent to the fibers. Rinse and then hang to dry. The longer you leave it in a swamp or creek, the finer and softer the fibers you will extract. I've left bark for over a year on purpose and accidentally left bark for over two years in swamps, coming back to find soft, strong thread that I can twist into stronger cord for making nets, woven bags, tump lines, sashes, and so, so much more. The Menominee of Wisconsin, the Ainu of Japan, and the Slavic cultures of Eastern Europe have all used the fiber of basswood and its Eurasian cousins, the Lindens, for making fabric clothing. Where cotton, linen, and wool were not available, basswood and linden were. 
Those large logs we let season and then carve into sugaring troughs, bowls, the back piece for a cradle board, and more. Things like masks and other big projects. The peeled branches become spoons, ladles, cups, and more. The wood is also really, really good for fire by friction. It's one of my favorites for teaching students on, and it's one of my favorite for dependable fire making, whether it would be with a bow drill, the fire plow, and many other methods. Interestingly enough, their seeds germinate very poorly, developing a hard shell after just a, a few days after ripening. So as they just hang there on the branch waiting to fall off, they become pretty impenetrable for germination process. This leads to very low germination rates and those that do germinate taking several years to do so. Basically, as soon as the seed is ripe, stick them in the dirt and wet them. And they should germinate sooner than later. However, the basswood coppices and suckers rapidly, making it a very sustainable tree to select for wood cuttings. We often cut basswood down and soon after find new young shoots emerging from the stump, both from young and old trees. We'll also select the straightest branches we find, dip them in rooting hormones, and stick them deep into the soil, encouraging another generation of tall, not free basswood trees for future people to benefit from, whether that be from its plethora of uses or the shade of its canopy. This has been your new no uh, <laughs> this has been your know your tree episode, uh, segment of this episode of the podcast and now let's get into winter survival calories. Hey folks, this is episode 136 and this is a continuation of our previous episode. So if you want to know greater context of what we're talking about here, I recommend you listen to episode 135 before this one. However, just as a simple kind of breakdown of what we talked about before. This is about survival food. This is not about camp food. This is not about food you take out with you. This is not about rations. This is not about any of those kinds of things. This is down and out in the wilderness. You're stuck, you're stranded, you're lost, and you've gotten all of your other priorities filled. You've taken care of fire, shelter, water, rescue, all that kind of stuff. And now you've got time. And that time should be dedicated to getting some calories. And of course, we talked about the calorie gain in the previous episode. So I'm not going to beat a dead horse with that. Basically say, uh, basically stated, you need to get a lot of calories in if you want to consume any of them to make it actually justifiable. Otherwise, save up on those calories, gather them, conserve the calories you have in your body. This is a great reason to be kind of chubby like me. Well, I'm more than kind of chubby. Anyways, this is a very straightforward game that is very complex. It's straightforward, but complex. The straightforward part is you need to get calories and you need to conserve calories. The complicated or complex part is you need to figure out the risk versus reward. If getting that food is diminishing returns, if you're burning more calories trying to get that food than you are receiving them and consuming them, it's not worth it. It's not worth trying to chase down a bull moose with a sharpened stick when you can snare a bunch of rabbits and the snaring process takes very little calorie gain compared to stalking, trying to track the animal first, find the animal, stalk the animal, get close enough and risk your safety killing that animal. Now, are the rewards great if you do get that bull moose? Sure, but how much risk did you put into it? That might be something that's a value when you have proper weapons on you. It may not be valuable when all you have is the stuff you can make. So with all that said and done, we talked about the growing season when it's easiest to get all these calories in you. There's a lot of plants that are available that time of year. There's a lot of animals around. There's a lot more critter options out there. And there's a lot more accessible foods because the ground is thawed. The ground is alive. The ground is soft. You can dig into it. You can get into the swamps. You can get into the forests. You can, you can find food. Wintertime is a whole other beast. Wintertime is when things get really hard and you need to know exactly what the hell you're doing. <sighs> it, it's not easy. It really isn't easy. Um, I've done a lot of winter survival training. I've done a lot of winter survival courses. I've trained uh, for the majority of my life now, over two thirds of my life, I've spent in survival and bushcraft. And in that time, I can tell you it's really hard. Like if I had to choose a time of year to get dropped in the middle of the wilderness naked with minimal tools at best, summertime. I know the bugs are bad, but summertime, that's like the number one time I want to be out there. If I have nothing and I need to get food from the wilderness, it's summertime. 
winter, it, it's not my, it's not my preference. I, I love camping in the winter. I love doing survival training in the winter time. Uh, it, there's a lot of value to winter, uh, especially if you have things like snowshoes to be able to c- cover a lot of ground, you can get to places that you were never able to get to, uh, in the summertime because now it's easy to get to it because it's covered in snow and ice, but that snow and ice is the challenge to getting to your food. The cold is the challenge here. Now, hands down across everything else, we talked a lot about carbohydrates and plant foods in the summertime. Wintertime, they aren't really an option. There's a few and we'll talk about them, but trapping among above everything else becomes your main goal. Yes, you can get animals like porcupine in the wintertime. Yes, you can find kills from wolves or coyotes and you can scavenge from those. But trapping is the most calorie smart and risk versus reward smart way of getting protein. And protein is the game in wintertime. I want to make that very, very clear. Winter, it's protein. You want to take animals. Uh, There are some plants available like tree barks, certain lichens, as well as some evergreen plants you can find in the right environment. But for the most part, it's, it's animals. Trapping though is the easiest way. And we talked about that on many times before trapping can, a trap can hunt for you 24 seven, regardless of the conditions or weather. Uh, you can set hundreds of traps if you're smart about it. And those traps can do the work for you and they can be in the spots where there's going to be animals. And we talked a little bit about micro trapping in the previous episode. And we've talked about trapping on many occasions in the past. You all know what my philosophies and my ethics and stuff are regarding traps at the end of the day, trapping is the best way to get food in winter. And the most effective trap is the snare. And don't come at me, you deadfall lovers. Trust me, I've used deadfalls and I use deadfalls still on my trap line. I'm one of the few people who use deadfalls to this day. Uh, and I legally can because of how I trap and where I trap and who I am and everything else like that. And I can tell you deadfalls do work. When they're built properly and you know exactly what you're doing and you put them in the exact right spot, but they take a lot of time to make and they take a lot of understanding of the trap to get them to work right. If you don't have that, you shouldn't depend on them. Putting a couple of figure four deadfalls around your basement to catch mice is one thing. Trying to catch rabbit, trying to catch porcupine, trying to catch beaver, trying to catch any animal with a deadfall in the wilderness, very big difference. Snares, on the other hand, have been used to catch everything from mice to moose. And I'm not joking with that. I'm not being hyperbolic I'm, or hyperbolic, however you pronounce that. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you a fact. They have been used to kill moose. They've been used to kill mice and everything in between. You can make bird snares, knocking things around while I'm recording. <clears throat> you, can use, you can use snares to catch birds. You can use the snares to catch mammals. You can use snares to catch fish if you're smart about it. Same with turtles. But the main snare you're going to want to know is the classic snowshoe hare snare, or also known as the rolling snare or rabbit snare. These are going to be your bread and butter, and you can make them from the wires of your snowmobile or ATV or airplane, whatever crashed or broke down on you. And you can use snare that you brought, a snare wire that you brought with you in your survival kit. You can use cord. I will say right now that every time I see somebody make a parachute cord snare, I kind of chuckle because it doesn't work that well as a snare. Yeah, it's strong. Yeah, it has some stretch, so it'll it'll resist the the pull. But a most animals can chew through it. But b when you make a snare lock on paracord, it often locks down before it fully tightens around the animal's neck. So before the noose can do its job, the noose gets stuck. Wire is better. Cable is best. If you can get cable, try like snare cable, that's the best stuff. And yes, you can get snare cable for as small of an animal as a rabbit. Um, that is the best option. Snare wire is great. Although I will say right now, if you buy your snare wire from big box stores, you're going to get about three to five snares per coil of snare wire and that's expensive stuff and it's bulky. I prefer to use, uh, everything from picture wire, like picture hanging wire all the way to, you can find sometimes at the army surplus stores, uh, trip wire, uh, that comes in yellow and green. And there's a lot of it on each spool and you get those spools. Like there's usually four big coils per spool and each spool costs like $4 and 99 cents. 
Canadian. They're there. It's affordable and you can get hundreds of snares out of one spool. And it's portable because it was made for military use. It's, it's made to fit into all their other gear. So it's a very small little spool that you can carry a lot of snare material with, uh, for in the field. Snaring requires a lot of know-how. You should take trapping courses at the minimal. You should take a survival course where they focus on winter, where you can learn the proper rabbit snare and practice on it. Uh, and if you have a small game license and you're in Ontario and you're north of the Magnetowan or French rivers, you can snare for rabbit legally under your small game license. You just have to be in the right areas and be doing it legally and effectively and learn them and practice them. The reason I'm talking about snares is they don't take a lot of know-how. You need to know how to make them. You need to know how to set them and you need to know how, where to set them. But beyond that, you're pretty much ready to go. And a snare can take as little as 10 seconds to create. Like it, it really doesn't take a lot of work to make a snare. Deadfalls, a lot of work. Downfalls, even more work. Pit traps, not going to work very well in the wintertime. Um, you can make bow traps and stuff, uh, all that kind of stuff. But those, again, take a lot more engineering time. Whereas I can make snares in a matter of seconds. And I can make a lot of them in a matter of seconds. And you can set a lot of them in a day because they're portable, they're light, they're cheap. You have a ton of them that can fit in a small space. There, there, there's so many values to snaring over any other type of trap. And so learning how to snare for rabbit, learning how to snare for squirrel, learning how to snare for all those kinds of animals, the small game animals are going to be your best bets. And again, you want to use a lot of them. You want to set dozens, if not hundreds of snares. In an ideal situation, I would have 200 snares set throughout my area and I would find every spot that rabbits cross and have intersections in the wetlands and the spruce bough forests around me. I would find all their trails and I would set one at every single crossroad that they have. At least one, if not two or three. Now, snaring is one way and it is one of the best ways. And that's why I'm really hitting home that this is the way to get a lot of animals. There are some concerns when it comes down to snaring rabbit. The first is rabbit starvation, which is a real thing. Hypervitaminosis A. Um, hypervitaminosis A is basically protein poisoning. You are not consuming enough carbohydrates and fats to offset the protein consumption. Protein requires the most calories to digest and protein requires the most water to digest. And so you need to be well hydrated and you need to have a lot of other foods coming into your stomach with that meat to make it worth your while. Rabbit is one of the leanest meats in the world. is one of the highest protein meats in the world as well because of that. But there is enough fat on a rabbit and there's enough carbohydrates in a rabbit if you eat the whole animal. We've talked about this before and I'm going to say it again. Take, singe the hair off. No pun intended with snowshoe hair. Um, and simply cook the whole rabbit. Skin, brains, guts, everything. Don't gut it. Don't skin it. Cook the whole rabbit. Just take the hair off of the hair and, and cook the rest. The fat is in the brain. It's in the eyes. It's in the intestines. It's in the heart. It's in the skin. And it'll come out into that water. It's in the bones as well. So once you've eaten that, that boiled rabbit, crush those bones and throw them back in with the heart, the liver, whatever else. Now, if that liver has spots on it, that rabbit may be ill. And that's the same with most other animals. If you see really weird splotches or hard parts to the liver, it's usually a sign of disease. This is where you have to decide how hungry are you? So if you are in a real survival situation, you know that tularemia, which is the rabbit fever, which actually is prevalent in all mammals, not just rabbits. Tularemia is common in the wilderness. It's, it's throughout the entire Northern hemisphere and Southern hemisphere. It's, it's cosmopolitan and tularemia can be destroyed by cooking, thorough cooking, which is why I'm a big fan of boiling. You, you stew that hair, that rabbit, that squirrel, whatever you got for as long as possible. And then you eat it and the cooking will destroy pathogens that are in the body, whether it's trichinella or tularemia, whatever it may be. 
You got to make sure it's cooked well, though. You got to make sure it's cooked well. This is not, this is coming back to risk versus reward. Yeah, you got the rabbit. Are you going to get sick from that rabbit? Hmm? So, cook thoroughly, eat everything. Everything. And I do mean everything. Like, everything. <laughs> on that animal. It's, it's necessary to get those calories. Um, when we talk about, you know, calories from small game animals, and we're talking about how much fat is there? A rabbit has enough fat to feed you. If you eat everything, squirrel has enough fat to feed you. If you eat everything there, there's very few wild animals that have an overabundance of fat. When you need food, beaver, are one of the rare cases where there's a ton of fat. And it's why beaver is one of the like true winter survival fares. If you can trap the beaver, if you can spear a beaver on land or you can club a beaver on land, which is hard to do, it's hard to catch them. They move fast and they don't stray far from water holes. But if you can get one, that is like the gold. That is the true gold of winter survival fare. The next one is porcupine. I think we talked a little bit about porcupine in the previous one. I honestly, it's been a blur of a week, so it's hard for me to recall. But uh, porcupine is one of the few animals that is easy to catch without modern weapons. And we've talked about this during the Anishinaabek sugar bush episode. We've talked about this on a few different episodes. Porcupine don't require a gun. They don't require a bow. They don't even require a spear. You can just knock them out of a tree or find their den and drag them out and club them. They are not hard to kill whatsoever. And again, they are rich in fat, unlike rabbit and squirrel. So you got to find The trick is finding them. And to me, rendering out the fat is worth it. So if I'm going to roast the, uh, the porcupine, the beaver, I'm going to make sure there's a container underneath where I'm roasting them to catch that fat and whatever fat is left rendered on the meat is going to be delicious. And whatever fat renders out into that pot, I can use on other meals. I can now baste my rabbits in porcupine or beaver fat. I have that ability. I can cook very nutritious and calorie dense broths and soups with that porcupine fat and the marrow from the beaver and the porcupine and the fat from the beaver's tail and all that kind of stuff. I can do that now. I can't do that with a rabbit or a squirrel as well, because they're just not going to be as dense in fat. They are going to be able to provide just enough fat to keep you fed. They're not, you're not going to be, you know, bulking up. You're not going to be getting a lot of extra calories. You're going to have just enough calories to keep you from freezing to death or starving to death. But when you get a beaver or you get a porcupine, there's a chance to thrive, not just survive. There really is a chance. And so learning those techniques and those tactics of catching those animals is worth it. Setting traps for beaver, learning how to make snares for beaver, learning how to do those things is valuable. Learning how to identify their terrain and knowing where a porcupine or a beaver will reside and going to check out those spots and finding those spots and then setting your attack. Um, a good friend of mine, Jim Knapp, often calls beaver freshwater seal. And if you act like an Inuk hunter who's after seal, you might get a beaver as well. You just got to find where their ice, uh, their, their air holes are. You got to find where their entrances in and out of their dens are. And you can spear and kill a beaver like you would a seal if you were Inuk. Or you can set traps. I prefer setting traps because I don't want to stand there day and night waiting for a beaver to pop out of a hole. It's, it's just not conducive to my philosophy and pedagogy when it comes to survival. So when it comes down to mammals, rabbit, squirrel, porcupine, beaver, those are the animals you want to focus your time in the Northern hemisphere for. You're going to be able to get them. They're available. A lot of other smaller game are either hibernating like raccoon, chipmunks, etc., or they're just not around anymore. Like a lot of the birds that have migrated South roughed grouse, Hungarian gray partridge, ptarmigan, spruce grouse, those birds are still around. 
whiskey jacks and a few other birds as well. And they can be a food source, but you got to be smart on how you catch them. You can set snares for them. There's the classic ptarmigan snares that are basically just a series of V's made of red osier dogwood, alder, and birch branches that are covered in buds. And then at the apex of each of those V's, you hang several snares and you put a pile of buds or fruit, whether it's highbush cranberries that you found or wintergreen berries, partridge berries, pile them up in the middle of that V and then set snares in front of them. And this fence made of all these branches will attract them to come get some food. And then they see those berries or fruits and they come in to, for the uh, for the meal and they come in for the kill and they get caught. There's a few other types of snares you can make. Uh, one of my favorites is simply taking a piece of cord that's about mm, half a meter in length, about a foot and a half, two feet long. Make a big loop that's about mm, eight to nine inches in diameter, sometimes smaller if you're really effective, and tying this with a slip knot at the end of a stick. And this stick should be about seven to eight feet long. It could be your slap stick that we were talking about in the previous episode. And when you see a grouse or a partridge or a ptarmigan, you flush them into a tree and they trust their camouflage to protect them. And they'll stay there as you lift that noose up, drape it over their neck. And when they try to fly away, they draw it in tight while you yank them to the ground. It works. I've witnessed it and I've done it. It works. You just have to be actively in the area where they are at the time that they're there, which is the challenge. Again, Hunting versus trapping, trapping wins when it comes down to calorie gain. We got to think about the calorie gain all the time. Now, a lot of us have seen survival shows and documentaries where they show ice fishing and they show you how to set night lines for pike and uh, what we call um, burbot over here, sometimes ling, uh, all these other fish. And it makes sense when you have an ice chisel or an auger. If you don't have those, the only other option you have is making an ice chisel with your knife or using your ax, both of which have some risk to them. If you use your knife to make an ice chisel, uh, one of the brothers bushcraft videos out there, Norseman, uh, AKA Gunnery Sergeant David Williams retired very dear friend of mine, a man that I love and hold in high regard. Uh, his, you, his TikTok channel you can find is Northwoods Kindred. Very cool dude. Really, really cool dude. Um, he demonstrates in one of our Brothers of Bushcraft videos how to make an ice chisel using the Brothers of Bushcraft Fieldcraft knife by Topps Knives. And you can do that with a lot of Bushcraft knives as long as they're of, of an exquisite temper and they're made to handle those kinds of abuses. The main thing he makes very clear during that is you're not driving it into the ice. You're lifting and dropping it and letting the knife break the ice gently. You're not going to make a fast hole because you got to protect your knife. Another technique is using a, an axe and cutting three lines into a triangle again and again and again, much wider than your actual intended hole because you've got to be able to swing the axe all the way to the bottom. Sometimes the lake ice is three feet thick. Sometimes it's five feet thick. Up in Northern Canada, you can get six, seven foot thick ice. Getting through that with a knife or an ax is very, very challenging. So what you gotta do is figure out where can I find thinner ice that is still safe to stand on, but also where could there be natural holes that I can put lines through on their own? Nets versus fishing line, it becomes a whole other game. Trying to get a net set up under the ice on your own in a survival situation without a net jig, which is a tool that goes under the ice and allows you to set the net across an expanse of ice underwater and under the ice is very, very, very challenging. You can do it. If you've got the right kind of floats and you have, you know, the currents of the lake or the river or wherever you are, are you can start upstream or start up current, cut a hole, set the net through, float it downstream or down current, then go downstream or down current, find through the ice where the net is so, sitting and chop a hole and retrieve the other end of the net. 
It's a lot of work and it takes a lot of practice and it takes the right kind of ice conditions to do that. Can you guarantee that in a survival scenario? Also, packing a net in your survival kit. Easier said than done. When we're talking about a survival kit that is on your person at all times, are you going to carry a net at all times when you're out in the wilderness in the wintertime? Maybe if you're on a snowmobile, but you may leave it behind when you go out on your snowshoes to check your traps and then you get your hand caught in a trap or your snowmobile breaks down or you get turned around lost from where your snowmobile is. It becomes a lot harder of a game of, can I carry that net with me? Whereas I always said before, carrying tackle and line is really not that hard and it doesn't take up that much room as long as you're smart about it. Getting bait for those traps becomes more challenging. And so we go back to that classic game of take what you got and build up from it. So we go out with some of the guts we got from a rabbit on our trap line, stick some of those guts on a hook, sink it down and jig for a while until you catch a small fish. Then you put that small fish on the hook and throw it back in and you go for a bigger fish. The main fish that you're probably going to find up in the North country that are active in the winter are going to be your pike, your perch, maybe walleye. You're not going to be hitting a lot of bass, though they are out there. Uh, you're not going to be hitting a lot of trout, though they are out there, lake trout and such. Um, there is always that possibility on certain lakes, but that comes down to the real big game. And that is you need to know how to read a body of water and know what's in that water when it's frozen solid and covered in snow. Otherwise, you're kind of just shooting in the dark. And that's what survival fishing is going to be. You, you, you don't know necessarily what fish are in that body of water that your plane crashed on or your snowmobile, uh, snowmobile or snow machine broke down on or where you got your snowshoes broken and turned around and lost. You may not know what fish are in that lake. And so you have to kind of start from square one with no idea of what you're going to catch. You might catch a 17 inch muskie. You might catch a three inch minnow. You don't know until you set your lines. And so again, hedging your bets, we got to set a lot of night lines under the ice without an ice chisel. It becomes a challenge. Your best bet is to find clear ice free of most snow and preferably that you can see through nice, dark black ice. And you cut your holes through that and you set as many as you can. What you're going to do is you're going to get a bunch of branches. You're going to get one branch that is straight and about as long as your arm. And then you're going to get one branch that is forked about as long as your arm, if not longer. Longer than the ice is thick is the preference. And you're going to get a bunch of these. And what you're going to do is you're going to cut your hole. You're going to lay across your straight stick right across it. And at the bottom of one of your forks, you're going to tie your fishing line. And then at the bottom end of the fishing line, you're going to set your hook, set your weights, set your bait, toss it in the hole, and then you're going to stuff that forked branch down, fork crotch resting over that horizontal stick. This two-stick fish uh, ice fishing method is an old school technique, really old school. It's been used by the Sami, by the Inuit, by Nishnabek, many people around the world. It's a very simple way to do it. The two main benefits are it's braced on nice and tight because you've got that fork stick resting on a horizontal stick that doesn't let the stick go flying through the ice. You've got a big fish on, but also the stick fills up most of the ice hole. So you don't, when you're using your ice chisel to reopen the hole, cause you still have to reopen the hole. It's less risk of you cutting the line and losing whatever might be on the end of that line. So having that stick that is as long as the hole is going to be deep protects the line from your ice chisel or your impromptu ice chisel. The next thing you're going to want to do is stuff that hole with as much green material or fibrous material as possible so that when it does freeze over, it is easy to break open again. I've used cattail leaves. I've used spruce boughs. I've used moss. Stuff that hole with as much material that is going to hold air and have fibrous gaps so that it doesn't freeze solid. It has to freeze around that stuff. I really enjoy using cattail leaf for that because cattail doesn't, leaf doesn't freeze very well. It has that nice waxy coating on it that makes it kind of hard for water to stick to it and therefore it doesn't freeze very well. So it's easy to open up the next day. Again, this is all about the calories. If I cut that hole, the last thing I want to have is that hole freeze perfectly solid again because then I got to cut that hole again. Once we 
stuff the hole, we cover all of our holes with at least a foot of snow to insulate it, to make it even less likely to freeze solid. And then because we're smart, we mark them. We get a big stick and stuff it in the snow beside them and tie onto that stick with a little bit of wire or fishing line, a bunch of spruce boughs or other material that we can easily see across the frozen expanse to mark our holes so that we can find them again, even if there's been a heavy blizzard, right? We got to plan ahead because we put all these calories, we've put, we've invested so many hours and energy into these high ice holes for fishing. We need to make sure that they can be recovered and opened up again easier because we don't want to invest a bunch of energy into something that may end up being a complete lemon. And that's the real problem here. We got to be able to read the ice. You got to look at the lake, the frozen body of water you're on and be able to say, yeah, this has fish potential or no, this does not have fish potential. If you see a bunch of plants sticking up out of the snow throughout the entire expanse of water, you're in a wetland that probably has very little fish activity and very little area that you can actually set a line in without getting snagged on branches and underwater uh, material, uh, plant material. You're, you're just not going to find it there. You've got to find open water, whether it may be a river or a lake or a big old pond, whatever it may be, you got to find those open bodies of water and there you can set your, your traps, your, your, your hooks. This is where things are challenging. This is where things are not easy. This is where things are reality. It's not the romanticism that people think it is. It's not the beauty and proving of self-reliance that everybody thinks survival is. It's setting a lot of traps and a lot of hooks and praying to whatever deity you think is up there that one of them is at least successful. At least one of them. Learning how to set traps under the ice for beaver, learning how to set traps for rabbit, learning how to set night lines on fish hooks for pike and burbot and everything else. It's a lot of training. It's a lot of practice, a lot of know-how and a lot of knowledge. It's, it's your mental toolkit expanding so that you can survive this situation. It's not always going to be successful. That's why we call it trapping and hunting, not killing. But that's the reality of it all. Now, before we dive into the foraging aspect, people have asked in a couple emails already, are there any survival hunting weapons that you can take with you? Yeah. If you're on a snowmobile trip or you're going on a winter trek with a, with a snowshoe and toboggans, uh, snowshoes and toboggan, you can bring a firearm as long as you're legal to carry it. As long as you're licensed to hunt. Uh, because there are a lot of small game that are available in wintertime on those treks for you to shoot ptarmigan, rough grouse, snowshoe hare, whatever. Um, if you can bring a takedown 22, there's a lot of options. The 1022 Ruger actually comes down in a takedown model. You can even get like a Magpul backpacker stock attached that makes it all even more compact. You can bring a takedown shotgun, uh, a lot of single shot and double, uh, double, uh, barrel, uh, break action shotguns can actually be broken down and taken, uh, taken down to fit a small space. Um, and those can be used, but we're talking about the reality of a survival situation. It is very unlikely for you to have those with you in a real survival scenario. You're not Katniss Everdeen and you're not Mad Jack Churchill. You're not carrying a bow with you 24 seven, right? You're not going to be bringing a gun with you everywhere you go on every single snowmobile trip, every single, you know, hike into the wilderness. You're not going to be carrying a firearm every time. And it's when you're the least prepared is when the most likelihood of a survival situation happening occurs. And so they're just not realistic. A takedown bow, a takedown rifle, takedown shotgun, whatever it may be, are just not realistic. What could be realistic is a slingshot. And that's where the question comes up is how good are you with a slingshot? How much practice do you put into your slingshots? I'm a huge fan of slingshots. I have at least a dozen different shapes, makes, and models of slingshots. And I've gotten very good at casting lead shot for them. I've got very good at shooting regular already store-bought shot for them. Uh, you can even make, my buddy Mikhail has this technique for getting bird shot, spread shot in a slingshot where you take a, a square of toilet paper, 
pour a bunch of lead shot or bird shot in there and twist it like a Hershey's kiss. And then you put that into the, the hammock or the, the, the seat of your, of your slingshot. And when you launch, you just make sure you flick your wrist out of the way so you don't shoot yourself. Um, and it's pretty good at getting squirrel. It's pretty good at getting, uh, grouse and such, but then you got to put into your consideration, your survival kit, the ammunition and how much ammunition are you willing to sacrifice trying to get one animal, right? Like with, with a shotgun, you may put out three, four, five rounds and miss a squirrel. That's a lot of ammo to lose in a survival kit and a survival gun. You got to get very precise and take only the best shots. And that goes the same, if not triple for a slingshot. You got to look for the cleanest opportunity to take the shot. And you've got to be very accurate with it, whether it's with spread shot or with a single piece of ammunition going down range. I've gotten pretty good with lead shot. I've got pretty good with steel ball bearings. Those are one of my favorites to use three, eight steel ball bearings. Uh, they're a lot lighter than the lead and I can carry a whole lot more of them. And they're consistent with how they sling, right? So I can practice with those a lot. One thing I don't recommend is depending on rocks and gravel. First off, every piece is going to be different weighted, different shapes, so it's going to fly different, and you're not guaranteed accuracy with that. B, in the wintertime, there's a lot less of it because, again, everything is covered in ice and snow. So can I guarantee those things? So you got to put into your survival kit mentality, am I bringing a slingshot? And if I am bringing a slingshot, can I carry enough ammunition to make it through a week long survival odyssey and take a dozen shots a day that miss? That's a lot to carry in a survival kit. We start getting into that realities of survival kits thing again, where does it make sense? Does it make sense to have half a pound to a pound of projectiles in your pocket? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I carry a slingshot with me a lot in the woods and I've taught my son how to shoot slingshots and I teach everybody I can how to shoot slingshots. I'm a big fan of slingshots, but we got to be practical here. We got to be realistic here. Can I make consistent, accurate shots in a survival situation and get enough game with it? And we're talking about opportunistic killing, just like we were talking about the rabbit stick or the throwing stick or the throwing club, as well as the slap stick. You got to be, it's opportunistic shots. A slingshot increases my reach. Does it increase my accuracy? I don't know. When everything counts, you start to get stressed easier and it's more likely that you're going to mess up a shot. And so we've got to take all of that in consideration when it comes down to what we take with us in our survival kits. With that out of the way, let's dive into the winter foraging. Now we said before the number one food source that is across the Northern hemisphere and many other parts of the world is cattail, also known as greater reed mace, typha species. They are not available when everything is frozen solid. So that is not a food source we can rely on. The, the cattail heads are not edible in the wintertime. Uh, make very good stuffing to stuff around clothing and stuff to keep you warm. Makes a very good flash tinder for making a fire. And it also makes really good, uh, what we call antifreeze for deadfall traps and even steel traps where things won't freeze to it. Cause again, just like we were talking with the ice fishing hole, stuffing it with all that fibers material doesn't allow things to ice up very well, but not really a food source. So. Cattail is out of the question. Starchy root vegetables, out of the question. Berries, sometimes available. Depends on the species and depends on the region. It depends on where you are regarding the snow depth. Uh, those berries that are available in the wintertime are highbush cranberry, uh, both the native and non-native. Um, mostly pretty bitter. The, 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 the non-native ones, the European or Eurasian varieties that you find in much of Ontario and Quebec, but the, the native ones, the Triloba subspecies, Viburnum Triloba, fairly sweet come wintertime and frozen over, but they're usually picked clean by birds, uh, but you do find them occasionally. Uh, wintergreen berries and partridge berries, if the snow is shallow enough under the conifer trees to find them, they are a very good berry to find that can help sweeten up your meals. Again, not a calorie builder, but a good addition to a uh, survival stew that's full of everything else you've been catching. Helps make that rabbit taste a whole lot better when it's just boiled whole. That's the best way to describe those berries. Uh, they're a good ingredient. 
so what are we left with? Well, what we are left with is T's and Barks. Bark, so one of the names of the Adirondack mountain range is Ratrontak or Adirondack coming from the Haudenosaunee, specifically I believe from the Ganyagehar Mohawk language, uh, meaning bark eaters. And it's a derogatory term for my people, the Anishinaabek. Because often if you were up in the mountains and there's not a lot of wild rice and there's not a lot of acorns and you didn't get a good enough, a good enough uh, harvest of those in the fall, by the time of Bacchae Gizis or February, the hunger moon, you're relying on bark. And what you do is you go up to these coniferous trees like pine and spruce. You can also go to birch and poplar and you chop the outer bark off and you peel off the inner bark, scrape off the inner bark into a pot and you boil that up and you eat it. And we talked about survival bark breads from grinding it up and everything else like that earlier for the summertime. This is a little bit different. The bark does not want to come off the wood easily. The, wood, the outer bark does not want to come off the inner bark easily. And the inner bark doesn't want to come off the, uh, the wood easily. And so you have this game of trying to pry and scrape and grind off whatever you can get to put into your, into your pot. And again, a cook pot is like a billy can is like a primary tool you should have in your survival kit, whether it's a stainless steel water bottle, a single walled stainless steel water bottle or a proper billy can or an apple juice can that you hung a, wire, a piece of coat hanger wire as a bale off of whatever it may be. Um, these are what you need to go after is your conifers and your deciduous trees that are edible. You need to be able to identify those trees. So birch, poplar, Maple, if you can find them, don't go after oak, uh, but birch, poplar, maple, and then of course spruce and pine. Uh, you can take with a saw or your ax, chop off a bunch of branches, take them into your shelter, warm them over the fire and try to scrape off and peel off that outer bark and then scrape the inner bark, the living tissue off of that outer bark and the branches, put that into a pot and you can start to cook them. There is a lot of ways to do this, but a lot of foraging in the wintertime, the rewards have diminishing returns. You've got to get a lot of it and you got to get tons of it. And those calories are hard to get. And so you got to take your time and think it through. Heating and peeling those pieces of wood rather than just trying to chip away at it out in the cold makes a whole lot more sense to me. Um, if you can get to them, the cambium is great. The cambium being the inner bark. Uh, they are often much more bitter <clears throat> than their summer compa comparisons. So if we're talking about the white pine bark that we talked about last time. In summertime, it's quite sweet. In wintertime, it's quite bitter because all the sugars of the sap have left, leaving behind the tannins. There's very small amounts of tannin in all trees. Poplar actually has quite a bit of tannin in its, in its bark. Not as much as hemlock and oak and acorn, uh, uh, sorry, hickory, but it has some tannin, which will make it kind of bitter. Um, if you do a quick boil and change the water and then cook with, uh, cook them through, it's a lot easier. Um, it does reduce the bitterness a bit. The, they're best cooked by chopping up that inner bark. Now, my favorite example is birch because birch has a lot of cambium, like a lot of cambium. And if you cut a birch tree down for whatever projects you're working on, if you brought yourself along an ax or a saw in your survival kit, chopping down a big white birch, even a six inch, seven inch diameter white birch to make a bunch of other projects that you're working on at a green wood. Maybe you need some components for snowshoes to be repaired or to make new snowshoes. Uh, maybe you're trying to make a couple of boards to make a toboggan. You can use green birch for a lot of that stuff. Warm it up over the fire for a little bit, peel off the bark and chop up that coarse inner bark, uh, coarsely chop it as finely as you can. And again, parboil it for a few minutes to, and then change the water and then start stewing it for a long period with whatever meats and bones you caught on your snares and from your hunting. And it'll be a pretty serviceable meal that can fill your stomach and it does have a decent amount of calories in it. Not as many as the calories in the summertime because again, there's not a lot of sugars. You're left with more of the bitter starches and more undigestible starches that you got to cook down for a long time. Stewing, again, survival stew becomes your main food source here. So bark, 
becomes a food again for the winter. It's not going to be into a nice bread or chopped into real fine noodles uh, that you can cook up with rabbit and whatnot. It's going to be more chunks that you kind of chop up as best you can with your knife, slicing it up cross grain as best you can to make this real coarse kind of uh, oatmeal kind of consistency if you're lucky. And uh, grinding tools are not as available in the wintertime. Again, so you can't grind it into a good flour. You can't find a lot of good easy rocks to work with. Um, so chopping it as fine as you can with your knife and just kind of slicing it up as much as possible so that your teeth don't have to, have to do all the work. And then cooking it for at least a couple of hours. Like stewing. Proper braising and stewing for a long, long time. That is your your main way to get these calories out of the, the inner bark of these edible trees. You got to know which ones are edible. You don't want to get a bunch of locust or Canada wild yew or anything like that and try to cook that bark. It's not going to be good for your health and it's not going to be good for your survivability. So we want to focus on those edible trees, getting their bark. And again, the easiest way to do that is bring the wood into your shelter and warm it up by the fire and try to take your time with it, making sure it's thoroughly thawed and then peeling off that outer bark, getting that inner bark scraped up, chopped off, whatever you can into a pot and cook it for a long period and if possible, cook it with meats or bones into a decent gruel or um, survival stew. Let's just call it that. It's the best way to describe it. Beyond that, one of your main sources of starch is going to be from teas. Uh, teas can be made from conifer bough needles. So again, spruce, cedar, hemlock tree, balsam fir, pine. Those make pretty decent teas. A lot of people complain about them, but they are a vitamin rich, mineral rich tea that can help keep your health up. Um, very dense in vitamin C would be your Eastern white cedar, your all conifers to be frank. Uh, they all have a very high, uh, vitamin C content, ascorbic acid content, um, but also other minerals and vitamins. So it's a good thing to have. Labrador tea grows across much of the Northern hemisphere, especially in the boreal and taiga ecosystems. Very easily accessible in the wintertime because it grows up out of the, the muskeg. So you can go and pick the leaves off and they are evergreen leaves. So they are edible in the wintertime and they have vitamin C in them and they have a lot of other things, flavonoids, riboflavin, so much stuff that helps your body and it helps you with a lot of other things. It's not going to necessarily give you calories but it's going to give you nutrients and it's going to give you medicinal effects that help your body recover from the stresses out there. Labrador tea also helps with your runny guts. So whether you have constipation or you have diarrhea from whatever reasons in the, in your survival situation, it tightens your intestinal lining. So it helps you, uh, both with diarrhea and constipation. So it's a great herbal remedy tea to have with you out there. Wintergreen is another one. If you can find wintergreen, again, if we can find the berries, you can find the leaves, gather the leaves. They are wintergreen. They are evergreen. Same with partridge berry, which is a member of the wintergreen family, or at least a very close relative. Um, they carry ASA in them. So if you're having headaches from living in a smoky environment and all that kind of stuff, drinking wintergreen tea can assist you with those pains. The final one is going back to those tree barks and boiling them for a long time to make a dark, dark tea and drinking that tea can assist and it will extract carbohydrates out of that. And that can become a carbohydrate rich, um, what we sometimes call winter survival Gatorade. So it's going to have all those things. So if I can find all those ingredients, I can find some white pine needle, uh, pi white pine needles, some Labrador tea, some wintergreen leaves, and then I can get a bunch of like birch cambium or pine cambium and I put them all into a pot and boil them all together. I can make a very, very nutritious tea that also has some calories in it for me. And if need be, that can become the basis for another survival stew. And that's really it. We have small game trapping, small game hunting, small, uh, sorry, ice fishing and the tactics to get into ice fishing in a survival situation, foraging of bark and some berries. So if you, again, if you're making a survival tea and you find some high bush cranberry, tossing some of those in there to get more of a tart sour tea that can kind of like almost like a sumac aid can keep you going. If you have sumac in the area, sumac, uh, the sumac berries, although they're not really a proper berry, they are a seed and fruit, but they're not truly a berry, uh, can be 
stewed up and made into a pretty decent tea in the wintertime, though they, they are a lot more bitter and a lot less sweet come wintertime. There's a lot of others you can look into, but really at the end of the day, you just have to learn your winter foraging and realize that a lot of it is a calorie game of how much risk versus reward. How much are there diminishing returns on this? Am I going to be putting a lot more calories out than in? Then if not, maybe it's time to focus on trapping. And to me, in a survival situation, if I'm going to start getting food in the wintertime, it's trapping. I'm setting snares. I'm not even going to look at plants until I have at least 30 to 50 snares set. And then even then it's just going to be whatever I have opportunistically gathered. If I come across a spot where there's a lot less snow and I see a bunch of winter green on the ground, sure, I'm going to pick some. If I come across rock tripe or reindeer moss or reindeer lichen, yeah, I'm going to pick some and bring it home and I'm going to add that to my survival stew and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not going out of my way in the wintertime to forage. I'm not ex exerting that kind of energy. Same as I'm not going to exert a lot of energy into trying to cut through six feet of ice. If the hole is just too, if the, if the ice is just too thick to cut a hole through easily within the next half an hour, I am not cutting that hole. You get me? I'm just going to focus on snaring. Bring snare wire in your survival kits for winter time. Bring fishing line as well, but also see if you can pack a portable ice chisel. If you can figure out how to get a, from a blacksmith, a good ice chisel blade and learn how to fix those onto shafts in the wilderness. Yeah. Then it makes sense to carry one in your survival kit for the winter time. Your winter survival kit should be a little bit bigger, if not much bigger than your summer survival kit, because in my winter survival kit, I want to stuff in extra clothing. I want to stuff in a sleeping bag. If I can, I want to stuff a bunch of stuff, my backpack that I take with me when I'm on my trap line, when I go on a snowmobile trip, when I go on a snowshoe trip and I have a toboggan behind me, the backpack that I keep on my person, that's my survival kit. That is if I crash through the ice and I lose my toboggan or I go and crash my snowmobile or ATV, or I get turned around and lost. That backpack is my survival kit. And it does not leave my person at any time that I'm not in my tent or in my shelter or whatever it is that I'm camping in. That survival kit stays on me. I have inside of it a saw. I have sleeping gear. I have extra clothing, a lot of extra socks. I have all those kinds of things, as well as a lot more trapping and ice fishing equipment for me in a survival situation. And yes, that pack could be a 30 liter or 45 liter rucksack or smaller. If you, if you get smart with it, you know exactly how to pack and, and know what you're doing with it. My pack usually ranges around 28 to 30 pounds. And that pack again, stays on my person. Okay. And I hope that's really what has really kind of been nailed home in these last two episodes is yeah, these are your survival food sources, but you need to bring some stuff with you to make them succeed. You need to have a cook pot. You need to have tools that can help you forage these things and catch these, these animals. You need those things. You need to have those skills as well as the right equipment for this to actually succeed. Otherwise you're floundering in the woods until survival uh, search and rescue finds you. And you're probably going to be a whole lot worse off than you should be. The more you know, the less you carry, the more time it will take, but you should still carry some stuff. And that should mainly be focused on your survival kit for shelter, fire, water procurement and purification, disinfection, rescue and signaling, and then food, right? And in wintertime, add extra shelter to that, like more sleeping gear, heavy duty sleeping bag, a down, a double stuffed down vest is something that Morse Kohansky always nailed home. Go to a couple of thrift stores and find two down vests, open the seams on one and stuff the down from the other one into that and stitch it shut again and stuff that into your billy can or into your pack, wherever you can to increase your shelter's efficiency and efficacy for your warmth. But this is focusing on survival food and calories, not necessarily your shelter, but that's stuff you got to nail home in your survival kit. Oh, a more than adequately stocked survival kit is so important in the wilderness, but even more so in the wintertime. And in the wintertime, include an ice chisel blade that you can attach to a handle and you've learned to affix the handle securely and practiced with in 
local water bodies of water where you go ice fishing and stuff, practice with that ice chisel. So you know how long it takes to cut through ice, learn how to read depth of ice, learn how to read bodies of water when they're frozen, learn that stuff. It's your mental toolkit. That's going to get you through this stuff. Not what you carry in the pack, but the stuff you carry in the pack is important too. With that all said and done, I want to thank Charlotte, Dave, Megan, Christina, Christiane, Christina, there's two Christinas and a Christiane and a bunch of other people over at Patreon who have been supporting us through this podcast and through all of our projects. Go to patreon.com slash Canadian Bushcraft. You can join the Dragonfly Nation today, have your voice heard, ask your questions, get access to all of our articles and everything that are over there at patreon.com slash Canadian Bushcraft for as little as one coffee a month, $1.50 Canadian. Or even more and get even more kickbacks, which are coming down the pipeline real hard right now. We've got a bunch of stuff. We've got patches now. We've got Medav. We've got challenge coins for everybody of certain tiers. All that is coming out this month at the end of April. Uh, we're we're dumping a ton of cool gear and kit and swag to everybody over at Patreon who've been supporting us at certain tiers. Uh, the virtual classes are going to be starting back up, but they're going to be bi-monthly every two months, uh, not every month as they were before all this kind of stuff. And you can find even more than that over at patreon.com slash Canadian bushcraft. With that, I want to thank all of you for listening to this two part series. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. If you have any questions, reach out to us at Canadian bushcraft podcast at gmail.com or over at patreon.com slash Canadian bushcraft. With all that said and done, take care. We'll see you next week on the podcast. <laughs>